You're listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Patient and Steadfast Ministry of God's People, recorded on Sunday, April 2nd, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. How much do you hate waiting for something that you feel like should have already begun? (laughs) Much of life is waiting. And our sermon this weekend is about waiting and what it's like to wait and what we should do when we wait and why does God want us to wait. You know, one of the things that I think is that we all experience difficulty in waiting for is bearing with the injustices that are in our world. And if we go back in time a little bit, you know, we're going through the book of James and that's where we're going to be at tonight. We're going to be in James chapter 5. As we think about what, the, what life was like for those people then, we find a lot of things on, in common with them. One of the things that we have in common is that we all have to bear with certain injustices in our world. One of the injustices in the, in the world of the first century believers was that the wealthy and powerful people had control over the poor and helpless people. And there were very few wealthy. And so you had this system in society where you have these wealthy people with all of the power and they can do whatever they want to the poor people. They can get away with all kinds of injustices. And so James tells us in chapter 5 about one such injustice and how God is going to respond. And if you remember from last week when Pastor Scott preached the first few verses of James 5, we saw that God is coming to avenge those who have been mistreated. He speaks of how the rich have abused the workers that they have hired and how they've they've held back their wages from them. He speaks of of how these rich oppressors have fattened their wallets through oppressing the poor, but they have also fattened their hearts for the slaughter, James reminds us. The truth is that injustices always exist. Sure, today we we have the privilege of living in a society where through through hard work and dedication, you you can climb up the social ladder. In fact, one of the beautiful things about American history is that our country is full of people who have come into this country dirt poor or who were born into this country dirt poor and became very successful and very wealthy. Well, you just didn't have that in the first century world. If you weren't born into it, you were never going to get it. And many places like that in our world today are still the same way. That's why so many people want to come in to affluent countries like America, where they see this opportunity to do something that doesn't exist in their country and in their culture. You don't have to travel far to find people who are born into poverty that they will never climb out of. This is one of the injustices in our world. Not to say that everybody should have the same amount of stuff, regardless of what they contribute or, or how, well, uh, how hard they're willing to work. I'm not speaking of socialism. I'm talking about the oppression of the rich and powerful on the poor and needy. That's something that was very real in the first century. And so James writes to encourage the believers that this injustice does not go unnoticed by God. When I think about some of the injustices 
of our world today, I think about abortion. I think about things like sex trafficking. With, where, you know, without going into great detail in, in a mixed audience that certainly would include some young people uh, here today, these are awful injustices. These are, these are at, at, at their core, powerful people taking advantage of powerless people to accomplish anything they want. God hates such injustices. That's exactly the message of James 5. He writes to encourage believers that though we live in a world that is full of injustice, God sees every bit of it. And he will come to avenge all of those who have been oppressed. In fact, that's the first thing you'll see there on your map. God hates injustice and will right every wrong in the world. Think about that for a moment. What does that mean for us? That God hates injustice and he will, in fact, right every wrong in this world. There's evidence of this all throughout the Bible. We don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time today looking at that because I want to get to our text, but let me briefly mention that God has two ways of righting every wrong in the world. The first is through what he has done on the cross. The first is through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And it is his offer of mercy and forgiveness to those who have committed injustice. Which, when we think about it, is all of us. If we're going to draw a line between the just and the unjust, the just and the unjust, we're all on the wrong side of that line, aren't we? Yeah, we look at each other and we, me- we measure ourselves against other people and-, and we can always find people who have done worse than us. But when God draws that line, we all find ourselves on the opposite side of that line than he is. And so he has one way of dealing with that, the cross. And through the cross, God atones for. He pays the price for injustice, what we would call sin. And he pours out his wrath against all sin and injustice, the sins that you and I have committed even before we committed them. He pours out his holy, righteous, just wrath on Jesus on the cross. And then he says, all who will come to the cross to receive mercy and forgiveness will receive it. That's one way that God will right every wrong. The other is for those who refuse that offer of mercy and forgiveness. The other is that he is coming, that Jesus is coming to the earth again to judge every injustice. And when Christ comes a second time, at that point, he will right every wrong by condemning and punishing all of the unrepentant who are alive and even those who have already died. 
All who have rejected his offer of mercy through the cross will receive the judgment that they deserve. He will also at that time abolish the systems of sin and injustice that presently exist and operate in our world. The thing I love about this is because no matter how close we get, we never get to this place where our society is a society of justice. Our justice system fails to bring about justice again and again and again. God will replace that faulty justice system with a perfect justice system one day. And he will right every wrong. And he will execute perfect judgment. And so these are the two ways that God has of righting every wrong. One, through his offer of mercy and forgiveness through the cross of Jesus. But for those who refuse to accept his offer of mercy and forgiveness, he will bring judgment. So in light of this, let's look at our text again, James 5, 7 through 11. Let me read, and you can follow along. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So in light of the injustices that we must live with in this world, and in light of God's certain judgment, the, the, the coming judgment in which he will right every wrong, in light of these things, what does James tell us to do? First of all, be patient. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, this is on your map, until the coming of the Lord. What should be our response to, to living in a world of such injustice? What should we do with that, that, let's say, holy frustration that we all feel that things are not okay in this world, that no matter how hard we try, we cannot stop the evil that exists? Be patient. That's what James says to do. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord Patience because we have confidence in how this is going to end. This is an invitation to look at the big picture. To see not just what is happening now, but to fast forward to the end and to understand how the story ends. We are certain that Jesus will make all things right. We know that this is not how the story ends. This is not as close as we will get to justice. We will one day see justice. 
God will avenge the helpless aborted children. He will avenge the enslaved sex worker. He will judge the oppressors and those who have fattened their wallets by fraudulent abuse of their workers. That's why James wrote verses 1 through 6. Not because he thought not because he thought these unjust rich people were going to read his letter. He wrote to remind the brothers the believers in Christ, he wrote to remind the church of this. This is how the story ends. Jesus comes, and when he comes, he brings justice with him. He says in verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Be patient, therefore. He sees it. He knows about it. He will not forget. Revelation 22 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is saying, I decide how this ends. I'm the one who determines what will happen with these people who have not turned from injustice. I'm coming soon, and I'm bringing recompense to repay each one for what he has done. Be patient, therefore, James says. I hate movies that end without justice. For some reason, it's become, it's become the thing to do in Hollywood to make movies that just leave you with this awful feeling of, oh, thanks, I needed to be reminded of how bad this world stinks. I don't know why this has become so popular in Hollywood. I guess it's because that's how life is, and they, they think that that's how we want movies to be. But when I watch a movie, I want to watch a movie where wrongs are righted, where the good guys win, where justice prevails in the end. And that's why I love the movie Man on Fire, starring Denzel Washington. It's a few years old. I don't know how many of you have seen it or if you remember it. I'm certainly not, not saying you have to go watch it. In fact, I would say it's inappropriate for, for young children to watch because it's a, a very violent movie. But what I love about Man on Fire is it's a story about justice. It's a story about wrongs being righted. It's, it's one of those times where Hollywood gets it right, where Hollywood understands the way things ought to happen in the world. I'm not saying the way the movie plays out is the way things ought to happen, but there's this underlying tone of injustice being corrected. It's a story, uh, Denzel Washington plays this character. He's, it's been a while since I saw it, but from, from, if I can remember the plot correctly, he's, he's sort of this washed up alcoholic, ex-military, um, ex-mercenary kind of guy. And he takes this job in Mexico City um, 
protecting this little girl. And, and what's going on is this little girl's parents, they're, they're from a wealthy family, and they, have, they, have this, they want this insurance policy that pays a ransom if anybody in the family gets kidnapped because that's something that happens quite frequently in that part of the world. They kidnap children of wealthy people and then hold them for ransom. So you can actually buy insurance that would pay that ransom to bring your loved one back. But there's one stipulation from the insurance uh, company's perspective. You have to hire a bodyguard. And so the the dad hires Denzel Washington, this old, washed-up, ex-military, ex-mercenary, whatever he is, guy, to be his daughter's bodyguard. But what we don't know at the beginning of the movie is that the dad has fallen into debt. And he plans... He has already planned to allow his daughter to be kidnapped and he's going to split the ransom money with the kidnappers and use the rest to pay off his debt. What we learn is that this dad is an awful dad who's about to turn over his innocent daughter to some very awful men. And that's where the story gets interesting because after that happens, Denzel Washington's character comes to life and he sobers up and we begin to see these, these skills that he has developed of ye- over years of military and mercenary service and he goes on this mission to bring justice down on those who have done this to this little girl. And it is awesome. <laughs> Again, not appropriate for young children. (laughs) Denzel's name in the movie is Creasy. At one point in the movie when things are starting to heat up, Christopher Walken, who plays his friend, he's Creasy's friend, says this to the authorities that are are trying to track down Creasy and stop him from doing what what he's about to do. He says this. He says, a man can be an artist in anything, food, whatever, It depends on how good he is at it. Creasy's art is death. He's about to paint his masterpiece. He'll deliver more justice in a weekend than 10 years of your courts and tribunals. And then that's what happens in the movie. He brings justice to those who are above the law. He brings justice to those who have corrupted justice as a way of life. And you watch this, this play out, and again, I'm not suggesting this is the way things should happen in our world, but there's part of me that I'm seeing injustice being corrected that just screams, yes, yes, that's, that's what we need. Creasy, who's this unlikely hero, enters into this world of extreme Injustice, a world ruled by evil cartels and corrupt politicians where the weak and the powerless are prey, who are constantly trampled underfoot and consumed by the unjust and evil men who will use them for pleasure in any way they choose. In this world, there is no justice. That's why we love that character. The courts and the justice systems that do exist, they're either powerless or they're corrupt. They bring no justice. And then one man walks right into the middle of all of that 
and brings more justice in one weekend than they could in 10 years. These are the movies that encourage my imagination towards Jesus. <laughs> but with, with a couple of differences. You see, in, in our world, that's nothing more than one unjust man correcting other unjust men. It's not ultimate justice. It's not perfect justice. It's still an injustice in some sense. But when Jesus returns, he is the one who is perfectly righteous, who he is the only one qualified to bring true justice. And that's exactly what he will do. The best we can hope for in this world is tainted justice. But there is coming a day when the one who can perfectly carry out justice will do just that. He will right every wrong. He will make everything as it should be. So James tells us, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. That's a great illustration, isn't it? One that we can relate to a lot. We see this play out in our little part of the country here where we live. We see this play out every year. We see the way nature brings about the fruit of the harvest and there's really not much you can do to speed that up or to make it happen quickly. In fact, my daughter the other day, who's 10 years old, said she wants to have a garden this year. And so I sent her outside with a rake because we have a little raised bed garden area that hasn't been touched for like four years. And so there's leaves and there's trees growing in it now. And, and I sent her out there and she did great. She did good. She got it all cleared off. But what does she have to do next? Just to wait. It's not, even, it's not time yet. It's not time to even plant or to begin watering. It's not even time to, well, you could, till, you could till the ground now, but she has to wait for the right time. And after that, it'll be watering the plants and it'll be watching the fruit grow. It'll be pulling weeds and it'll be waiting for that perfect time to harvest. James reminds us that our waiting is like this. We, can, we have much to do, but really, we have to wait. We have to wait for the timing to be right. And so he goes on to say in verse 8 there, establish your hearts, the next thing on the map. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. Make your heart ready. Put your heart on the right things. Make, the, make your joy and your happiness in life come from the right place. Get your heart ready. Be ready for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It may feel long overdue, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel long overdue, but he is coming soon. When he does, he will bring this justice that we all long for with him. And all who have waited for him will be satisfied in a way that we could never imagine. 
We all love it when the bad guy gets what's coming to him. But the Bible reminds us again and again, apart from the work of Jesus Christ to come and to save us and to cause us to be born again, we're the bad guy, aren't we? And so be careful of your heart. Be careful where your heart goes with this. Long for justice. Long for the coming of the Lord. But do it with the right heart. Do it with a heart that understands the purpose of the Lord, which we'll get to in a minute. Let me move on to verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, James tells us. In many ways, this is the opposite of patient waiting, isn't it? Grumbling. What do we do when we become impatient? We begin to complain. We begin to talk. We begin to grumble. This is one of the most common responses to being asked to wait patiently. We don't wait well. Many of the places we hate going the most are places where we're asked to wait. Take the airport, for example. What's it like to go to the airport and to fly somewhere? Well, you, you, you start on your way, but then you hit traffic and you have to wait. And then you get to the airport and you, you have to wait in line to check in with your airline. And then they send you over to security where you wait. And then you get through security and you have to wait for the shuttle. And then you take the shuttle, you get to your gate, and it's not time to board, and so you wait. Then you get on the plane, you take your seat, and then you wait. And you watch as people bring in suitcases bigger than human beings and think they're going to fit into the overhead compartment. You wait for them to figure out this isn't going to work. And then the pilot pulls away from the gate, and he has to wait for permission to take off. And then your flight happens, and you land, and when you land, what happens? You have to wait for the gate to be ready. And then you get to your gate and they open the door and you have to wait for all of the people in front of you to get off the plane. And then you go to claim your baggage and you stand there and you wait. It's no wonder people go crazy on planes. (laughs) We hate waiting. I hate waiting. But James is specific As we wait, do not grumble. But he says something that I think we should pay attention to. He doesn't just say don't grumble. He says do not grumble against one another. It's okay to feel impatient. It's okay to have a complaint. It's not okay to turn that impatience on the people around you and to begin attacking them and blaming them for what's going on. Galatians 5 reminds us, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I love that. If we bite and devour one another, watch out that we are not consumed by one another. This is what James is warning us against. Don't turn and grumble against each other. Don't turn on one another. Therefore, be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold the judge is standing at the door. 
there are a lot of reasons to not grumble. James gives us a particular reason here. So that you may not be judged. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, there are some exceptions, but most people, if they're inside a courtroom waiting for the judge to come in, and they're told he's at the door, get ready, most people will pull themselves together, pay very special attention to their conduct, and even put great effort into how they look, because they don't want to be judged by the judge. This is why even hardened criminals, when they, when they go to court, they clean themselves up. Try to cover up the neck tattoos. <laughs> you know, try to, try to cut the hair and, and, and get yourself looking good. Get yourself a tie. Get, you got to look good because the judge is coming. James says this, this is one motivation not to grumble because at any moment Jesus could return. At any moment, we could be standing in his presence. Even if he doesn't return, we could die unexpectedly and be before the judge. That moment is imminent. It could happen at any time. We ought to live lives that are ready for it to happen. One way that I think is helpful as we wait to, to not fall into this pattern of grumbling against one another is to, to pay attention to what we place our focus and our hearts and our attention on. Think about it this way. If you've ever been waiting at li- in line at, let's say, Sheets or, or Walmart or something, let's say you go into Sheets and you just want to get a bottle of water. You're thirsty. It's a hot summer day. You just want to get a bottle of water. So you go in, you grab your bottle of water, you got your you know, you're dollar eighty nine or whatever it is now for a bottle of water ready, and you go to the counter and there's eight people in line. All you want is a bottle of water. You, if you could, you would just leave the money there and walk out, but no, you have to wait. And as you wait, you begin to get upset with the people in front of you. Because they want to buy, they want to buy lottery tickets, and they want to, they want to buy things that are complicated. I just want to buy this. Can I just leave this money here? This is all I want. And you start to think, maybe I don't even need a bottle of water. Is it, is it worth all of this trouble? But imagine you go to Sheets for a very different reason one day. Imagine your boss comes into work and he gives everybody Powerball tickets, and lo and behold, you win. But you got to go into sheets where, where he or she bought the Powerball tickets and turn it in to get your money. And now you walk into sheets and you're waiting in line. What are you thinking about while you're waiting in line? Are you thinking about the people in front of you and how annoying they are and how much they're in your way? Or are you thinking about, man, what am I going to do when I get this money? You're, you're picturing where you're going to live and um, what your new spouse is going to look like and what it's going to be like, you know, to have all this money. You're like, you're, you're, you're excited because you're thinking about something ahead that is very rewarding and has a great ending. As we wait for Jesus, if we focus on the people that are in front of us, that are in our way, we're going to grumble. If we turn our hearts, if we establish our hearts, as James says, to think about the Lord 
and to think about how good he is and how great it's going to be when he returns or when we die and go and be with him. Then all of a sudden, the people in front of us don't bother us so much. We might even feel some compassion for them. We might even offer to, to buy what they're buying. We, we might offer to, 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 you know, do something kind for them. As we wait, let's establish our hearts. Let's focus on the right things. Let me keep moving. James tells us next in verse 10. He tells us to remember the prophets. This, this is where this really starts to get good. I love where James takes this. He says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, what do you need to know about the prophets? Well, in general, they had tough lives. They stood up in, in the midst of, of unjust people in a world of injustice and proclaimed the holiness of God and invited people to come and turn from their unjust ways and to follow the God of justice, and very few people listened. Many of them were persecuted. Some of them were killed and treated very awfully for the message that they were speaking. The prophets were the one who stood in the gap between the God of holiness and the people of injustice. And he And these prophets pled for them to repent and receive God's mercy. And so James says, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets. He says, don't wait passively, but wait like the prophets. The prophets were known for people who longed to see God bring justice. They were known as people who longed to see God have his will and his way on the earth but they did not wait passively. They stood in the gap and they pleaded with people to come and to receive his mercy and compassion. Nonetheless, in this life, they were seemingly unsuccessful. That's why Hebrews 11 says this, and what more shall I say? For, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of the lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These are the prophets that James points us to as our example. They lived and died without ever seeing what we have had the privilege of seeing. 
the coming of Jesus to go to the cross to bring mercy, to bring forgiveness. The birth of the church, which for 2,000 years has been exalting Christ. They did not see the full revelation of God's plan in Jesus Christ in the way that we have. They lived patient, steadfast lives in the gap. And we consider them blessed because of their patient faithfulness. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, James says. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now James, specifically among the prophets, points us to Job, who most did not consider a prophet, but when you look at the end of his life and how he spoke properly of God and how he was used by God to reconcile his friends to him, I can see where James is going with this. He says, remember the steadfastness of Job. What is so encouraging to me about Job as an example is that Job's steadfastness leaves room for struggling. Job, if you're not familiar, was thrown into intense suffering. When his children died, his property was destroyed and his health failed him. And he had a very hard time accepting this. If you read the book of Job, he had great difficulty accepting this as any of us would have. Throughout the book of Job, he makes his complaints known. But he appears to do so in an appropriate way. For starters, he accepts his sufferings from the Lord and refuses to curse him. When people around him said, just curse God and die, you miserable man, he refused. Nevertheless, he calls on God to come and make sense of his suffering, but he never abandons faith in God. And this is the example that James points us to. As William Barclay said, Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. That's an example I can follow. God responds strongly to Job in what we would, I think, all call a rebuke, but it's a good rebuke. It's a loving rebuke. It's a rebuke that's intended not so much to shame Job, but to humble him and to comfort him by ensuring him that God is in control and that nothing that is going to happen to Job or to anybody else is too big for God to fix. That's the example that James points us to. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful as we wait for God to make things right. And whether that means the injustice that, that plagues our entire world or the suffering that plagues you as an individual. As we wait, remember the purpose that God has made clear in his compassion and mercy. We see this illustrated in Job's life when God restores to him 
his possession. He gives him a family again. He gives him the ability to enjoy the rest of his life in an even greater capacity. We still have yet, though, this one huge advantage over Job. First of all, we know Job's story. We know how it ends. And we know many other examples from Scripture and from our own lives and from Christian history of how God has walked with people through difficult times and brought good about into their lives in the end. These prophets who died without seeing the coming of Jesus, they see him now. And they rejoice that their patient, steadfast commitment to him paved the way for Jesus to come. And ultimately, for you and I to receive him, we are the answer to their prayers. We are what they longed to see. Crowds of people who want to follow Jesus. That's what they lived and suffered and died for. And God is is showing them now from a very different vantage point, his purpose, how he works, how he gets this done. And so with them as our example, let's, last thing on your map here, let's remember the purpose of the Lord and his compassion and mercy. God's purpose in all of this is our sanctification and the salvation of many more people. That's his purpose What is God doing through all of this injustice? What is God doing through my personal pain and suffering? Same thing. He is accomplishing our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ, and the salvation of many more souls. So we are patient and steadfast because we serve a God who has promised to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his name. There is no suffering, no difficulty, no challenges on the path to following Christ that won't ultimately work for our good. But also he has called us to stand in the gap, to stand between a holy God and an unjust people. As those whom he has brought out and redeemed and given us mercy and forgiveness and shown us his purpose and his compassion, he calls us to stand in the gap and to say to them, come, receive mercy. Receive forgiveness at the cross of Jesus. For one day he will come and make all things right. 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to I use this to get us to the end. Here it's a beautiful passage. It says, but do not overlook this one fact. Peter is responding to the objection that many raise. Well, you've been saying Jesus is coming soon for a long time. That's an objection we need to know how to answer. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus To be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter promises God is not slow. His purpose is this, that many more would come to repentance. His purpose is the saving of many more souls. And so we wait, yet, as he says in verse 12, hasten the coming of the day of God. So our waiting is not passive. It is active. It is full of hard work and labor for the Lord. It is full of carrying out the great commission and the commandment to make disciples of all nations. Wait patiently as you work for the Lord. So I want to I end by speaking to two crowds here. One, non-believers. Those of you who came here today not having a saving relationship with Jesus I hope in some sense these verses make you afraid. I hope in some sense today you're reminded that you will stand before a holy and just God to be judged and that he will find you guilty. But ultimately I want you to feel that because I want you to value the gift that he offers to you, the gift of mercy and compassion, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died as your substitute, that he paid the price for your sins, that he has already borne the punishment that you and I deserve. And if you will come to Jesus in faith, trusting him to be your savior, he delights to save you. The other crowd, of course, is believers. Those of us who have already taken that step, and now we're in, this, we're in this zone of patient waiting. It's not happening as fast as we want it to. We want God to make everything right now, both in our own personal lives and in the world that we live in. Well, I want to just encourage you today to patiently wait for him while working earnestly to accomplish his will the saving of many souls. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.